Amen. Thank you. If you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13 with me. If you're new to us or visiting us for the first time, we began last week a sermon series that will um, last, uh, we think, the, the duration of the whole year um, on John 13 through 17. It is a section of Scripture called the Upper Room Discourse uh, because it takes place in in uh, upper room, it's just Jesus and his disciples, um, their last conversation before his death, the most intimate moment we have of Jesus in the scriptures, the longest section of teaching from Jesus to his disciples we have. And so we're going to spend this year together uh, with the disciples in that room, uh, sitting and listening at the feet of Jesus. Uh, we introduced it last week, I encourage you to go back and uh, listen to that from verse one this week. Uh, we're going to look at two through five. Um, and you just need to know that what, what we, uh, verses two through five, is the act that Jesus is then going to use for an extended period of time in the upper room discourse. Um, he's going he's gonna to do something today, and then for, for the next uh, coming weeks, he's going to be applying that and talking about it and explaining it and stuff. So this is foundational to the upper room. Um, so we'll look at that today, verses two through five. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to come at this familiar passage with fresh eyes and teachable spirits, that you would give us a vision of yourself this morning, um, of the uniqueness of a God who stoops so low. Spirit, for that to happen, uh, we need your help. You are our helper, as Jesus is going to tell us here in a few chapters. You're the great helper. So we need your help to come and show us our Savior again, maybe for the first time. If it is for the first time, if there are those here who don't know you, Jesus, I pray that um, they would see something just completely unique here. Um, not a religion that asks them to serve God, but a God that serves them. Uh, Lord, give me strength. Uh, always feel unworthy to, to stand here in this moment, but for whatever reason, just today, this week, feel particularly unworthy and uh, the weightiness of the calling. And so I just, I just pray that you would release me from myself and uh, give me strength to honor you, Jesus, and preach as, as unto an audience of one and, uh, and that the hearers um, would, would understand that the, 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 the effectiveness of your word is not found in the strength, the virtue, the goodness, uh, the skill of the preacher, but in your spirit and your infallible word. And so it's in that spirit, Lord, that we enter in now into the preaching and ask for your blessing. Amen. I woke up this morning to the sad and tragic news that uh, Nabil Qureshi has lost his uh, battle to cancer, about a year-long battle to cancer yesterday, way too early, age of 34. Uh, for those unfamiliar with Qureshi, um, he, in his work, he is arguably the most important Christian um, apologist and evangelist to the Islamic world. 
Um, and when I read of his death this morning, I mean, early this morning, um, I, I, I decided to rewrite some things here. Um, not just as a way, I want to tell a story, not just as a way to honor his death, um, but because really his story, particularly um, the tension he felt between Islam and Christianity, and as he has evangelized and given a defense of the Christian faith and Islamic cultures for so long, um, the tension of his story and the tension of his teaching um, is really gets at, prepares us well for our passage uh, this morning because quite honestly, no passage speaks more profoundly to the stark contrast between Islam and Christianity. Um, he grew up, Nabil grew up as a child um, of Pakistani immigrants, um, was an extremely devout Muslim, um, not a nominally believing Muslim home, but a devout Muslim home. Um, but in college, he befriended a Christian, a Christian befriended him, which began a several year journey of exploring the claims of, uh, of, of the Christian faith. Um, and if you want to, if you want to read in more detail, you can read it. It's a, it's a New York Times bestseller, uh, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus, um, which is, which is a sto- his story. But long story short, that's exactly what happened. A, a devout seeker of Allah ended up uh, finding Jesus, being surprised by Jesus. It was a long journey, but after studying the claims of Jesus and allowing himself the freedom to critique the claims of Muhammad, he had become convinced. But it's when he became convinced that, that things got difficult for him um, because he knew what he needed to do. He knew he needed to give his life to Christ. But... Um, that brought a deep mourning in his life. And the reason being, and those familiar with this culture know this, if he is to follow Jesus, it means he, he would lose his family. His parents, who were great parents, wonderful people that he loved and had raised him um, in many ways so well. And he loved them and they loved him. And he knew that to follow Jesus would, would be um, the death of that relationship. So he was convinced, but he was also in mourning. And in one last challenge of this journey. What he did is he decided to test the Quran and the Bible when it comes to his mourning, his mournful sorrow. I'm just going to let him speak here. This is, these are his words. I began mourning the impact of the decision that I knew I had to make. Yearning for comfort, I decided to skip school one day. Returning to my apartment, I placed the Quran and the Bible in front of me. I turned to the Quran. But there was no comfort there for my mourning. For the first time, the book seemed utterly irrelevant to my sufferings. Indeed, irrelevant to my life. It felt like a dead book. With nowhere left to go, I opened the New Testament and I started reading. And very quickly, I came to a passage that said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Electric, the words leapt off the page and jump-started my heart. I couldn't put the Bible down. At one point, I found myself saying, but Jesus, accepting you would be like dying. I will have to give up everything. The next verses I read after that spoke to me saying, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus was being very blunt with me. For Muslims, following the gospel is more than a call to prayer. It is a call to die. And so I knelt at the foot of my bed and I gave up my life. And so this began his journey. 
as a Christian, which eventually led to becoming the most public evangelist and apologist to the Muslim world. Um, He spoke often about the two most difficult ideas for Muslims to believe. They were the most difficult concepts for him to believe in his journey and the most difficult concepts uh, for Muslims, any Muslim you talk to to believe, is that Jesus is God and Jesus died on the cross. And the reason is because they share with us this monotheistic conviction that there is, as we said in our catechisms, there is only one true God who is holy, he is transcendent, he is above all things. So the idea that a holy God would become man is utterly scandalous and even further is blasphemous. And then to actually claim that this God who became man would die a shameful death of a criminal as the scapegoat of sinners To the Muslim world, nothing is more antithetical to a holy, transcendent, monotheistic view of God than the incarnation of God and the execution of God. And so they believe in Jesus. They have great respect for Jesus as a prophet, second only to Muhammad himself, but they fervently claim that he is no God and he was not crucified. And you know what? I completely understand that dilemma for the Muslim faith. My Muslim friends have the struggle with the gospel and at times I want to say they understand the scandal of the gospel in a way in ways I wish Christians did. We are a monotheistic religion. <laughs> we believe in the holiness and transcendence the, the otherness of the one true God. And then we at the same time claim that God became a lowly man to die the lowliest of deaths. That's outrageous, Christian. And nowhere outside of the cross itself, nowhere is that outrage more displayed than our passage this morning. I have two points that I hope will help us appreciate Not just the tension of the passage, which it's there, but I would say the very tension of our conviction as Christians. Here's what I want us to see. The sovereignty of Jesus and the servitude of Jesus. Let's begin with his sovereignty. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot's son, Simon's son, to betray him. Now I want you to hold on to that statement for just a moment because we're going to return to it. But first, I want us to focus on verse 3, and I'll, I'll show you why that is in a little bit. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Now, these words reflect one of the difficulties of jumping right into the Gospel of John. These are customary for the Gospel of John, but strange to us if we haven't been studying the Gospel of John. Um, one of the things that's unique about John is he, has, he develops a very robust theology of this scandal, of Jesus as both fully God and fully man. He sets it all up with the first chapter, John 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then that Word became flesh, human flesh, and dwelt among us. And then throughout the Gospel, John continually has this emphasis of the eternal God becoming flesh. One of the ways he does this is by repeatedly saying that the Father has given all things into this man's hands. The Son of God has always owned all things, 
as the eternal second person of the Trinity, as we said in our confession of faith this morning. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. But the incarnation makes it such that now a real man, as human as you are human, now owns all things. And we mean all things. The expansiveness of this language here is intentional. All things have been given into his hands. We teach our children to sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. That is way too small. The world is a tiny little infinitesimal speck in the vastness of the universe. Way too small for Jesus. Yes, he's got the whole world, but he also has the sun that heats the world, that blazing star of energy and heat in our sky so bright that you can't look at it directly from 92 million miles away without going blind. That's in his hands too. And not just that one star, but the hundred billion other stars in our galaxies. He's got them in his hands too. As well as the hundred billion other galaxies, each with their own hundred billion stars. I'm sure you're following math here, but if not, that's roughly one billion trillion stars in the hands of Jesus. And we're just talking here about the physical creation. All things also includes the spiritual heavenly realm, the unseen realm. And we have no idea how vast that is, only that the scriptures speak of it as immeasurable, which seems pretty big to me. He doesn't have the whole world in his hands. He's got the vastness of the observable universe and the immeasurable expanses of the invisible heavens in his hands. Granted, that would be a terrible nursery rhyme. So we'll stick with world. But you get the point. In his hands are all things. What does that even mean? What does that metaphor even mean that's so common in Scripture? What does it mean to have it in his hands? Well, I, maybe, maybe I'll just ask it like this. What does it mean to have something in your hands? You are sovereign over what is in your hands in so many different ways. What is in your hands? Most often, that's probably your iPhone. And that's actually not a bad imagery. Jesus relates to the entirety of the cosmos as you relate to your iPhone. I own this. I have authority over this. I am sovereign. I care for it. I have control for it. It does my bidding. I tell it what to do. He is sovereign over creation as you are sovereign over your smartphone. Now, what would you do if your iPhone suddenly chose to disobey you? You ask Siri a question, she says, you know what, I'm not telling you. Or, I'm gonna, or worse, I'm going to lie to you. You write out a text and hit send and says, no, nah, I don't feel like sending your text. What would you do with a rebellious iPhone? I tell you what you do. Wrath, judgment, zero forbearance for a sinful Siri. Now here's why I'm saying that. That statement that I told you to hold off on. Notice how John introduces the whole story. And this is important. We're going to keep coming back to it. The whole story 
of the upper room and Jesus washing the feet, notice how he introduces the statement about Jesus having all things in his hands. Verse 2, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's, Simon's son, to betray him. This whole scene is going to take place beneath the shadow of betrayal. Heaven and earth are in his hands. Verse 3. Verse 2. The great betrayer of heaven, the devil, the great betrayer of earth, Judas, are in his midst. What will he do? Pretend you don't know the story. Try it. Pretend you don't know the story. You don't know this Jesus. You don't know anything about his character. You don't know the story up to this point. You don't know what he's about to do. Just all you know is you got the sovereign of existence right here. All things are in his hands. Then you're going to feel the tension, the rising tension and conflict here. Let me read through the first three words of verse four. I think those belong in verse 3, to be honest with you. I don't know why they carried them over, but you'll see an end of the sentence there after the first three words of verse 4 because I think it's, there's this tension building. Let me read it, and you just enter into the tension, pretend like you don't know what's going to happen. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper. What do you think he's about to do? Stands up, a sovereign, knowing that his betrayal is at hand and that his betrayer is in his midst, rises from supper. Some from supper. Do you feel the tension? You sense what should happen next? A a a holy well jihad, holy war. That's what happened. Holy retribution from a holy God. My betrayer is at hand. Now let's stand amazed at what actually does happen. Having seen the sovereignty of Jesus, consider now with me the servitude of Jesus. All things belong to this man's hands. He rises from supper. Verse four. He laid aside his garments. Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When we think about Jesus washing his disciples' feet, we typically think about the scandal of the story is the grossness of the story. You've probably heard this passage preached on before, and preachers go to great length to talk about the ancient world, how they wore sandals on dirt roads, and so their feet were nasty and caked with filth and all that, and it's true, that's definitely true, and so the sermon kind of turns into this. Um, but Jesus isn't afraid of your filth. He loves you so much. He'll, 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 he'll wash your feet. All of that is true, but it's not scandalous enough. The scandal of the scene has less to do with the filth of this act as much as the position of the act. Notice how detailed John is here in describing things. Gets into what Jesus was wearing, the towel, the basin, so forth. What he is doing is describing a picture of Jesus that the ancient world would immediately recognize, but we don't recognize um, because it's utterly foreign to us, which is a good thing it's foreign to us because what he's doing here is he is describing a household slave. Slavery was common in the ancient world, and slaves were certainly looked down as the lowliest of society. 
But even among slaves, there were uh, deeper levels of, of shame. Um, for instance, there's a difference between Jewish slaves and Gentile slaves. Some duties were viewed as so lowly that only a Gentile slave would perform them. And foot washing was one of those duties. And these Gentile slaves, they had a uniform, an embarrassing uniform, a shameful uniform. Underwear, only underwear with a towel tied around their waist. Just humiliating. Now return to verse 3. Rises from supper, what will he do? He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Jesus has stripped down to his underwear, and he has tied a towel around his waist, and has taken the position of a Gentile slave. I don't know why that image this week gave me a newfound appreciation for the lowly, lowliness of Jesus. Just Jesus in his underwear. So shameful, so embarrassing, so meek. Like a common Gentile slave. Please do not let this scene die the death of overfamiliarity. Take it in as though you have never heard the story before. Take it in like a devout Muslim would take in the thought of he who has all things in his hands stripped down to his underwear like a slave. These hands that hold all things are at work performing the lowliest things that hands could do. The name that is above every name is wearing the uniform that is beneath every name. The one to whom every knee shall bow is bowing the knee to his disciples. The one who shall put all enemies under his foot is washing the feet of his enemy. The creation sovereign has become the household's servant. Jesus, the omnipotent slave. Now in the coming weeks, we are going to talk a lot about the implications and applications of that act. That's what Jesus is going to do. Much of the upper room discourse is him meditating on what he just did, applying what he just did, explaining what he just did. So we're going to be applying this passage to our lives a lot in the coming weeks. But before we get to what this says to us just this week as a way to prepare us for the whole thing, this week I want us to consider what this says about Jesus. Who is this man, this omnipotent slave? We know how others would interpret the idea of an omnipotent slave. Ridiculous at best, blasphemous at worst. But what is foolishness in the eyes of the world and other religions becomes glorious through the lens of the gospel. What does this passage say about Jesus? Apparently, his glory is his humility. If Jesus is the full revelation of the one true triune God, indeed the incarnation of the one true God, then my, oh my, how tender is our God. That's what it says. The good news of the gospel is that God has chosen his highest act to be his lowliest act. And in this way, his shame becomes his glory. Look at verse 3 one more time. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, we, we, we looked at that extensively, but look at this, 
and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus is saying Jesus in the incarnation came from God and in his ascension he will soon be returning to God. And here is the stark question that the Apostle John is confronting us with. Is he more glorious where he came from and where he is returning to shortly? Is he more glorious there or here in this moment washing the feet of the disciples like a slave? The backwardness of the gospel is that he is more glorious here in this moment than on the throne of heaven. Now listen, we're splitting hairs theologically here. Uh, he is infinitely glorious in all that he does. But biblically speaking, the, f- the fullest moment of God's glory in Christ is this moment. Not necessarily this moment, but what this moment represents. He says, he'll say shortly, you're going to understand, understand what I'm doing to you now by what's about to come. So, clearly speaking, the fullest moment of the glory of God in Christ is the cross. And this is the prelude to the cross. Believe it or not, this isn't the lowest Jesus can go. He can get even lower. Soon he will be crucified as the scorn of heaven and earth. But the Bible speaks of Calvary's shame as heaven's boast. And this is why God's glory is his grace. Our holy, monotheistic, one true triune God does all things for his own glory. And in this, we agree with other monotheistic faiths that there is a transcendent holy God who does all things for his glory, but our God who does all things for his own glory has determined that nothing is more glorious than grace. And so the incarnation and the crucifixion that grace demands has become God's greatest moment. His shame is his glory. On the day that this author, Nabil Qureshi, released his final book, No God But One, very fitting title. On that same day that his book was released, he announced publicly to the world that he had been diagnosed with a very advanced uh, cancer diagnosis. And uh, that was about a year ago. He only lived another year. But when he did, he said to his Muslim friends publicly, and um, he's very controversial in the Muslim world, but he does so with such, so much respect, and, and um, it, it, he's very respected in the Muslim world. But when he, when he announced his diagnosis uh, publicly, he said this. I, I'm paraphrasing here. I didn't have time this morning to go and get the exact quote. This, this is essentially what he said. I know many of you think uh, this diagnosis is Allah's punishment upon me for my apostasy. But he said to them, ironically, my cancer has only re-emphasized to me the truth and the beauty of the gospel. For only I have a God who can relate to me and my suffering. And more importantly, only I have a God who can truly save me from my impending death. And it's there in those moments when we sense our desperation for this scandalous gospel of an omnipotent slave that we understand truly how glorious is the gospel of an omnipotent slave. So yesterday he, he went into glory. Um, when, when Nabil passed away yesterday, he was not confronted 
by a God wanting to know how faithful Nabil had served him. He was welcomed by a God who had already faithfully served Nabil. And it is his service and his humility that makes him so glorious. Let me pray. Jesus, we are humbled. We are humbled by your service. We are humbled by a God who condescends to man because you love us. That there's nothing you would not do. You would tear heaven and earth apart. You would put on the uniform of a Gentile slave. You would be nailed to a rugged cross. There's nothing you, sovereign God, would not do to have us as your own. And all of that, what I just said, is represented so perfectly now in this meal. Use this act, this holy act, to preach the gospel to our souls and overwhelm us, Lord, by your servants, heart and love for your people. Jesus, we can't say thank you enough, but we do pause again and say thank you. We love you. Amen.